first reading comes from Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over, the, over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as, the, as their teachers of the law. And the third reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 25. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and, and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance for the, from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mark.
Um, so great to have you here. I uh, hope to meet you after the service. Um, don't know what brought you. Some of you are planning to get married here in the next year or so. Look forward to meeting you afterwards. Join us for tea or coffee after the service. And uh, gee, it was great to listen to Paul outline all those announcements. They're not just announcements, as Paul said, they're snap into community. And there's so much going on now that the year has begun in earnest, uh, which we take the first Sunday in February to be uh, no longer summer. It is, but not in our minds. We're back into the year, which I'm excited by. And my name's Justin Moffat. I've not met you, and I'd like to meet you afterwards. I'm the rector of the church. Shall I pray? Yeah? Let's pray. Father, we want to live and work to your praise and glory, so teach us then how to live, teach us how to love, teach us how to work, make us more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So I was down at the Garrison Church just at the beginning of the service, I'm not sure if uh, this was announced, but for the next four weeks leading up to Lent, which takes us to Easter, can you believe it, for the next four weeks we're doing a series called made to work, meaning we've been designed, made for a purpose by God to do, among other things, to to work. Now, the reason uh, that this is our teaching series is that we're planning to spend 2019 connecting the dots between what we learn on Sunday and what we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, etc. We want alignment That's what we're looking for, between the gospel, the Christian message, and what we do midweek, which means our life, how we live, our relationships, pleasure, etc. But it also means our work, paid and unpaid, in the service of another, or voluntary, employed, looking for work, perhaps you're retired, we're going to draw those dots between what we learn and what we do at the office or in a studio or a school or a hospital, a home, a neighborhood, etc. Anywhere where you exert some energy, the place where you spend your time doing, which is, I don't know, bossing, creating, teaching, healing, selling, producing, I don't know what you do, anywhere where you have a plan and a means to execute such a plan, or those moments where you see a lot of chaos and you begin about creating order, not just tidying, but building, somewhere where you are serving society or a community. What I just said, by the way, are all ways to think about work. Perhaps you earn some money by doing it. Maybe you earn lots of money. Or maybe you don't. Maybe the joy is the reward for you. Does anyone remember that book in the 60s and 70s and 80s? Maybe earlier, I'm not sure. It was a Richard Scarry book, amazingly illustrated. Remember it? It was called What People Do All Day, Little Animals you know, fire trucks and yada, yada. That was my introduction as a child to the scope and variety of all the things we do all day. 
since I started preparing this talk, I'm like, wow, 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 everywhere you look. In fact, I dare you right now to listen during this sermon, not just to what I'm saying, but what professions you hear. On cue, a bus. What professions you hear all day, every day. It's amazing. The staff team and I spent 20 minutes last week asking the question, what professions are there in the Bible? And what does the Bible say about those professions? The first person to speak up, I think, was Jenny Fendler. I think. Who said, carpenter. Am I right? Am I wrong? Perhaps I'm right. (laughs) Carpenter. Jesus was, most likely, a carpenter. Mark 6, verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Dorothy Sayers wrote 70 years ago, no crooked lab- let me start again, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare say, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. And of course, secondly, fishermen, just to name those who were there at the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. And so many more. We've listed them out on page eight. This was 20 minutes of work. We put some Bible verses to it, which I I might try and fill it out next week perhaps. But there are tradies, lots of tradies, carpenters, gardeners, tent makers, bricklayers, slaves, jailers, fishermen, silversmiths, executioners, chefs, builders, day labourers. There are professionals, winemakers, dealers in purple cloth, merchants, etc. There are homemakers, mums, dads, seamstresses, childcare, midwives. There are those involved in agriculture, art, health, science, religion, government. And we concluded that almost all of these were valid and good and amazing in God's world. Not all of them, but lots of them. Not that all the workers were good and righteous. And not that they all performed their professions righteously. For example, there are despots in the Bible, all through the Bible, in government, if I can put it that way. But there were also kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We only had a 20-minute discussion, not intended to be exhaustive. But we concluded that the only professions in the Bible that we could find that were inherently wrong in the Bible were sorcerers and the like, against the plans and purposes of God, human traffickers, slave traders, 1 Timothy 1, and prostitution. We could argue, I think, about executioners too. That could be, it could be an argument there. Somebody at 8.30 uh, who's here at church today, he's our only twicer. Remember that? Mark, who read the scriptures, said maybe fraudsters, actually definitely fraudsters, insofar as being a fraudster is a profession. But almost everything else there is sanctified, you like that word? By the Creator as valid contributions to life and living in the world that God has made. We'll come to this next week. Sanctified, by the way, not just sort of we found our way out of evolution to do things that sort of seem good for other people. Now, you might like to add to this list from the Bible and your contributions over the series. And we want interaction through this series. This first talk will be disappointing because the process is a year-long encounter. 
Meaning, once you get those connect cards out and write down, you forgot this. These are the questions we need to answer. When you said that, this is the implications. If you say this, people will hear that. This is what I do every day. Are you telling me this? Are you telling me that? We want you to communicate with us by using those connect cards and popping them in the collection bags when they come around, especially if you're a visitor, that's all we want from you, or the white box at the end of the, uh, um, of the church. And that's only for the shy people. Anybody bold enough can come and walk up to me and say, what you said was wrong. And I'm like, please tell me, I need to know. Or you can email me, I am profoundly contactable. So we're spending the whole of 2019 connecting the dots between what we learn on Sunday and what we do on Monday and Tuesday, etc. So the theme of Sundays in 2019 will be Monday. And to that end, when we get to the exegesis of Scripture, we'll be spending the back half of the year in James and Daniel. I'll tell you why we're doing it. I've been in ministry for a while now, and there have been more than, one more than a few times over the years where someone has come to me privately and with disquiet about another member of the church. They work, for example, with or for a member of the church, but that member is a solid serving member of the church, a stalwart of the church, smiling, etc. But they've come to me, they don't want to dob, they're not trying to gossip, they're just trying to say, I'm, I've got disquiet because you know, Bill, not his real name, at work is a horrible bully. And everyone knows it. Got no ethics, yelling and screaming to get their way. They're control freaks. And when I hear that, I'm like, you know, not that I, I've got to assess what's true or not, but I'm like, wow. Are they not connecting the dots? Does it, you know, what's going on there theologically and what's going on psychologically? that such a disconnect can be, can be made. There, I'm sure you can think of a thousand reasons why the disconnect is made. Pressure, culture of work, perhaps sin in the human heart. Another reason to do the series for four weeks, five weeks, and then the whole year, is that work takes up so much of your time, and yet perhaps you hear... Not, not too many things on a Sunday that seem relevant to what you do on Monday. You've got a broad sense here of grace, truth-telling, ethics, according to the kingdom of God, but really you're thinking no connection, you know, between now and my trying to find work and I can't find it, or my inbox tomorrow morning, or the boss at work is a bully, or maybe you're a boss and you don't know how to control your, you know, and you think to yourself, Okay, these guys who stand in pulpits, for goodness sake, six feet above contradiction, all that, you're in your own bubble, and you go off to do whatever you do, and I don't know what all of you do, I know what a lot of you do, but as far as you're concerned, it is another world, separated by sandstone, literally. And there you are, slogging it out, and you've got a thousand questions in your head, how do I handle the expectations that are placed on me, what do I do with the disappointment I get every morning? Is what I'm doing good? Is it killing me? Am I swamped? What do I do about my boss who's a bully? How do I explain to my wife that the business that we started is going bankrupt? I'm being asked to do something that in my bones I know is not right. That's in my bones, let alone what the Bible says. Some people make the connections fairly simply. I know a GP 
uh, in a former church of mine who in his 50s quit his job as a GP to do a, to do a milk run. He connected the dots between the words physician heal thyself and his life. He said, all day, every day, I was telling people to eat right, exercise and, you know, do healthy things. And here I was getting more and more unfit. And so he decided that a milk run was better for his family. Now, he had an inheritance that allowed him to do that. Most of us don't. He could retire, well, not retire, he could do a job and support his family on a milk run, uh, which not many of us can do. Work, of course, is supposed to be hard. In his book, Life Together, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, bearing in mind gender-exclusive language, written in the 1940s. Okay. Work, he writes, plunges men into the world of things. Work plunges women into the world of things. The work of the world can be done only where a person forgets himself, where he loses himself in a cause, in reality, the task, the it. That's what you do when you go to work, the it, according to Bonhoeffer. In work, the Christian learns to allow himself to be limited by the task. You've got to turn up. And thus, for him, the work becomes a remedy against indolence and the sloth, the sloth of the flesh. So work is an it, and it's the hard thing you need to do, and you rail against it, and you find it hard. But according to Bonhoeffer, it's a remedy against laziness. If you've seen the 2002 English movie about a boy, Hugh Grant, about a boy, it's on Netflix. If you want to waste two hours of your life, which I did last week, you'll see an example of someone who didn't buy what the Bible might say, or certainly what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. The Hugh Grant character does nothing. What do you do? Nothing, except divide my time into 30-minute units because of an inheritance he has. His father wrote a one-hit wonder, a Christmas carol. And so he cares for no one but himself. That's what the movie's about, discovering that he could care for someone. But the moviegoer is left in no doubt that this isn't right. It isn't what we're made to do. We're made to work. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 and 13, the teacher says, I know that there is nothing better for men to do, to, than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. And so let's connect the dots between a verse like that and your life. What happens if you don't find satisfaction in your toil? You're not ready to say this is a gift. It feels more like a curse, you might say. Or how about this from the Apostle Paul? All of this is on page uh, one of your zines. Um, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, make it your ambition to... By the way, this sentence is absolutely jam-packed with meaning and worth meditating on tonight. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that, so that no one will be dependent, so that you will be dependent on nobody, as far as it depends on you. 
What is it to lead a quiet life? Why would you lead one? What is minding your own business? Is that mind your own business or is it not being controlling of others? What is it to work with your hands? certainly meant something in that culture. Is what I do win the respect of outsiders, not my friends in a former church? And as far as it depends on you, are you attempting not to be dependent on others? The series is called Made to Work for five weeks with a little break in between when we go to Rivendell and we look at um, Revelation at Rivendell and Ray Smith is going to speak here at 8.30 and 10.15 on the 17th of of February in in two weeks' time. But the series is outlined there in your orders of service on page six, how to be enthusiastic at work. We're going to draw the dots between worship and enthusiasm very briefly. How to be productive at work, a bit more full in that talk, drawing the dots between creation and productivity. Uh, How to be realistic at work, how to draw the dots between sin and, and realism. And how to be a witness at work, how to draw the dots between redemption and witness. And it's not just about what you say. Today is a a simple introduction, a taste, while I connect the dots from worship to life. I want to get better at this as the series goes on, so communicate to me. Dorothy Sayers wrote a piece called Why Work in the 1940s, and she said this, again, gender-exclusive language. She wrote, I have already on a previous occasion spoken at some length on the subject of work and vocation. What I urged then was a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work. I ask that it should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but, as far as it depends on you, as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God, that it should, in fact, be thought of thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of work itself, that man made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing now how you know how could that work if you're doing a spreadsheet you see I'm going to talk about that over the series and over the year so what's a thoroughgoing revolution look like with respect to worship the doctrine of worship how would i draw the connections between worship and life and i'm saying if we get our worship right it will start to lead to a renewed enthusiasm, which the original word, as this bishop told me on his way out of church at 8.30, I didn't know him. and I, He said to me, I love the word enthusiasm because it has two Greek words, en theo, in God. The true enthusiasm is not for bricks and mortar, or, but rather for your life in God. But I think there's something about work that is potentially crushing, And there's something about worship of the living God that gives you a levity for life. So I want to tell you about a principle and then connect the dots. And that outlines on page seven. Here's the principle. You've got to work out what this means over a year and a lifetime. The principle is that work is good, but not God. It's good, but not God. Same principle I outlined yesterday at a wedding Marriage is good, but it's not God. Work is good, but not God. If you see work as bad, it'll lead to negativity and drudgery, or even as neutral. It's just work. No, work is good in the Bible, but it's not God either. 
If you treat it as bad, it'll lead to drudgery. If you treat it as God, it'll crush your soul because you'll end up worshiping it and finding your identity in it. But a person in Christ is freed from such slavery. First, work is good. Gardening, for example, is embedded in creation in Genesis chapter 2. Till the earth, says God to Adam and Eve. So God affirms work. He puts order to the chaos and commissions his image, human beings, to do the same. Till the earth, he says, and subdue it. Make gardens, build buildings. When God said, let there be light, he's taking chaos and shedding light on the subject. In many ways, you could go to work tomorrow morning if you do that. Whatever you do, you could go to work and say, my mantra is, let there be light. Spiritually, of course, you want people to know God through Jesus Christ. But also, vocationally, you want less darkness, less sin, less toxic behavior, less culture of secrecy, less lying, less sexual desire that leads people to sleep with co-workers in inappropriate ways. You want less of it. And as far as it depends on you, you want to see there to be more light, less darkness. Let there be light right there in creation. But gardening is there in the early chapters of Genesis. We'll explore this next week. Uh, On page one, you'll see a a, a picture. It's actually a a Facebook upload um, on Friday from a member of our 1015 congregation. Uh, She posted this photo of her tomatoes uh, and wrote, Simple Joys, the rewards of gardening. Now, that's just not simply a person who likes gardening and likes tomatoes. It's a person who knows God through Jesus Christ. Such that when you take a bite of something you love, it's not tomatoes for me, it's peaches. I mean, it leads in some form to the worship of the living God. Peach equals worship. Precisely because it's not just about appetites of the flesh. Science is there in Genesis chapter 2. God brought the animals to the man to see what he would name them. It's just plain, downright classification. And I love how God delights in the science of classification. I don't know why science is set up against faith. It's a mystery to me. Actually, it's not a mystery. I know why historically, and, but I don't get it at the same time. Now, you say, okay, work is good, but you, you might also say, it's not God. You don't have to tell me that. I already know it's not God. I've not made an idol. I've not worshipped. I'm not turning up to the church of work. But you don't realize, well, maybe we don't realize how r- remarkably easy it is to make a God, small g, of work, to treat it in the end as an ultimate to get to a point where you say, if there is an ultimate beyond it, it's something else, what is it? Because whatever it is that is sort of ultimate for you, the main thing, then that functions in some way as a small g God that you'll sacrifice things for. That's what you do with gods. It's very easy to be sucked into the it, to place your hopes in your work or income or outcomes, to want more money or perhaps more significance 
and to sacrifice things, your life, maybe family, to worship the goals that you set for yourself, the small g gods that you have. A question you might like to ask yourself is, what would your life be like? Would it be meaningful if you didn't work? And I know there's speed bumps for those who, who retire, finding out what the work is they're going to do beyond uh, um, employ, employing, being employed by the man. <laughs> would you still see yourself as a son or a daughter of God, loved, forgiven, redeemed, full of hope, when the work stops? Tower of Babel is such an interesting story. Um, God is human beings made for his glory. They move eastward to, to now what is now Iraq, the plain of Shinar, which becomes Babylon later. They get involved in an engineering project, you know, uh, a building project. There's architects, there's bricklayers, there's brick builders, there's people who put the kiln together. No doubt there are surveyors who put plumb lines down and they band together with the project managers, you know, and the consultants who, you know, do we want the consultants? We better have them, all that. But they do it for a purpose, and the purpose is to be against God. They say, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They want to make a name for themselves. Isn't that what people do at work? God has to come down to see the puny tower that they've made, and he scatters them. I'm reminded of the story that Jesus told of the man who had more grain because of a bumper crop. He said, what will I do? I will tear down my barns, I will build new bigger ones, and I'll, uh, then I will say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. God says to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Or in Babylon, a thousand years later, King Nebuchadnezzar would say, is this not great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's what it is to be human. He's driven mad. Building, art, culture-making, project management, all good, but not God, not the be-all and end-all. But Jesus Christ came to save me. And he was a carpenter, but he moved from carpentry to fulfill his vocation as the eternal Son of God, risen as Messiah overall, liberating people like Justin Moffat from an unhealthy attitude to work, he lived, he died for our disordered worship of things other than him, for example, work. He forgave my sins and removed from me the just wrath of God by his death on the cross. And therefore, in his resurrection, he gave me a new hope and a new heart. The promise of the gospel is that he reordered our hearts so that we now worship God and not work or money or house or sex or pleasure or holiday we find our hope in him now that's got to give you a levitas a lightness of touch so now we serve differently we don't serve our work but we serve jesus christ forgiveness and a new heart changes that let me connect the dots very briefly paul can speak to slaves and say that their life changes now you need to know that slavery is not Endorsed in the Bible is a mere fact. I'll tell you why. In Exodus, the narrative of God is to free enslaved peoples. In 1 Timothy, slave traders are condemned. Men stealers, they're called. 
In Philemon, slaves are brothers in Christ to be treated as equals. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells slaves to gain their freedom if they can. Do not let the new atheists tell you otherwise. So it becomes interesting to me how Paul addresses slaves who know God through Jesus Christ and tells them to have a lightness of touch about what they do. And that might help us who are not slaves, who have a choice. And Paul says you have the opportunity to be enthusiastic at work because you're not serving work or a master, but serving Christ. That's what he says when he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence of the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, enthusiastically as working for the Lord, not the one who's in front of you. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward and not from some paycheck, it's the Lord Christ you are serving. So you're not weighted down by the paycheck, but rather enthusiastic in Christ with a purpose. It's not just simply about getting a job done, but about pleasing a divine master, not just a weird boss you don't have to be noticed you don't have to be rewarded not for identity you know for work and proper pay sure but not to get the prize not to show off not to curry favor as the apostle says not with eye service king james version as men pleases king james version you like the hardcore translations your purpose as in everything is to please god and not human beings and you won't be crushed as well Work can crush you if you make it your identity and you can destroy families. What if you built a house, meaning your life, on solid ground, says Jesus. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on rock. You'll weather the storms, cope with seasons of disappointment, handle retirement, precisely because your identity is not defined by what you do, but you're standing on solid ground. You worship God and not work. There's a doctor I know who used to say when he saw someone in the street, I healed that person. Now he says, God was kind to that person. God healed them after he gave his life to Christ. And lastly and finally, you won't be bored. You say, but you don't know what I do, the re- how repetitive it is. Well, slaves were doing repetitive things, and Paul says to them, you can do it with all your heart. See a person alive in Christ, having sorted out sin and forgiveness and hope, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, can be a slave, and yet still, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Let's pray. Father, give us courage to follow you in all things for Christ's sake. May that be true of our work, our lives, our loves, our hopes and dreams. But may we work as unto the Lord um, with a lightness of touch. Without worshipping work, I'll find our identity, finding our identity in it. May we know Jesus Christ, whom we serve and worship for Christ's sake. Amen.